To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's switch gears and go to the big banks. Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, She's been following these big banks for a long time. She's got an informed opinion. So, Allison, we've heard from some of the the big ones here. Um, What's kind of the takeaway? I mean, I know business trends are tough there from investment banking and and so on and so forth. But is is trading enough and is wealth management enough to get these big firms through to better capital markets days? So it was a softer quarter for uh, the investment bank. But uh, FIC was a highlight. It actually came in about stable with a year ago, equities trading uh, down about 12% across the U.S. banks. And then fees coming in uh, down 20 to 25%, which actually was a little bit better than feared and certainly better than you know the almost 50% decline that we saw last year. I would say going forward, you know, the, the pipelines are, are still healthy. We've been hearing that for several quarters now. And more and more, the banks are talking about um, a hope for the second half. Um, and 2024, certainly, um, you know, clarity is what's needed to execute these deals. Uh, the, the curve is pricing in um, some Fed cuts towards the end of the year. And I think that has been something that the banks are looking for as a catalyst for that activity. For banks, you know, the, the outperforming banks in terms of returns and revenue growth were really those more focused on lending. So Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan. Bank America and City. I would say that you know, these four banks, plus all of the the re- regional banks, uh, you know, the the one thing we heard universally: deposits are down, and net, the net interest income outlook is worsening because the cost of those deposits are rising. We did see some. some Isn't it ironic? In terms of, don't yeah. you think? <laughs> A little too well, ironic. <laughs> yeah, I really do think it's. For years, I was interviewing bank CEOs, Allison, who were like, we can't make any money in this low interest rate environment. There's no way for us to make net interest margin with zero rates. And um, now that the Fed and other central banks have been like, OK, you know, here's 500 basis points of increased <laughs> rates. They're like, we can't make any money in these high interest rate environments. I get that it they just moved too quickly for them. But how does it look, you know, going out two or three quarters? Are they going to? Are they going to be raking in the net interest margin by Q4? I mean, so keep in mind that it's all about sort of, you know, the expectations and where we are, right? So net interest income was up, I mean, it was almost up 50% at J.P. Morgan. It was up, you know, 45% almost at Wells Fargo, 23 to 25% at Bank of America Citigroup. So the net interest income growth is really strong, and so it is contributing to earnings growth. It's just that... You know, as investors are looking for uh, the peak, and so I, it, we, it was 4Q perhaps for some banks. It might be 1Q for others. And so it's not that they're not making money. It's just that got the lift, right? So they got the lift on the, on the, on the uh, prices of their loans, but now the prices of, of the deposits, so their you know, cost of goods sold, if you will, is finally starting to catch up. And so that's that's and that's coming in a little bit faster than people had anticipated. So, you know, it's all about the expectations. So they are still making significant amount of money. Again, commercial real estate, that's a big thing we're focusing on. Everyone's focusing on credit. Credit is still really solid. So it's weakening at the margin. Uh, commercial real estate, you know, is is very early innings. Um, but in general, you know, the, the returns this quarter were still pretty good. Headcount, Allison. I mean, when, when you talk about some some weakness in these businesses, that seems to be the first place where these big banks can go to can reduce expenses. What are they saying about headcount going forward? So starting to hear um, definitely on the investment banking side of things, you know, pockets of, of cuts 
as I said, the, the pipelines have been there for a while, and there really weren't reductions last year because the banks keep holding out hope that that revenue is coming back. But we are starting to see um, some re- some reductions. We're also hearing, you know, more broadly. So Goldman had had made some pretty sizable cuts, as we know, at the very beginning of the year. Um, they're making cuts in their consumer bank. Um, you know, Bank of America is actually talking about hiring people this year, but then things, you know, topping out after that. Um, and to some extent, it is, uh, you know, sort of the attrition is also slowing because it's just not the same job market that it was a year ago. Yep, absolutely. All right, Allison, thanks so much for uh, jumping on with us. We appreciate it. And it was a busy time uh, of the quarter for you with the banks reporting here. They tend to be one of the first groups out of the gate. Allison Williams, she's a senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's based in our Princeton University office. And again, I think what we've heard from a lot of the banks, the big banks, uh, as well as the regional banks, is the business is okay at the moment. Uh, and they are cautiously optimistic, but you know, I think I'd probably double underscore cautiously uh, at this point uh, when we hear from those bank management teams. Uh, S&P 500, I'm going to say it for Lisa Bromwitz, it is unched on the day. Literally nothing going on out there in the S&P, but that's okay. Yet. It's a Friday. Yet. Yet. Because we've got options expiring at 1 p.m. Wall Street time. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Think or Swim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Our next guest has perspective. Let me put it that way. Very, very expansive resume, very impressive. And we need perspective in a big way here. Nancy Tangler joins us. She's the CIO of Laffer Tangler Investments. Gets this. She splits her time map between Lake Tahoe and Scottsdale. What Sweet. a scam. I mean, figured it out completely. Nancy, thanks so much for joining us here. We appreciate coming to New York City to the Wait, heart Point of Wall Loma, Street. Point Loma University? Yeah. San Diego. That, uh, I know where How, Point Loma is. <laughs> How good is that? That's another great spot. Yeah, I know. Exactly. Geographically, you've done very you've well. You've done very well. And yeah. we're stuck here in you know, Midtown East. Uh, I don't know how that worked. All right, Nancy, you've seen these markets over cycles, over uh, long periods of time here. We've just come out of a pandemic. We had some crazy fiscal stimulus. Um, now they're starting to pull that stimulus away. The Fed has raised rates at an unprecedented level uh, over the past four quarters. How have you guys kind of positioned yourself for this environment right here? Yeah. So I've been um, pretty critical of Washington and the Fed. Uh, you know, I wrote a piece in July of 2021 that was entitled Mr. Magoo's Washington. And, <laughs> and that is what they remind me of. They kind of walk along and there's destruction all around them and somehow they come out of it clean. But um, I, I think if uh, the last well, first of all, I wish the Federal Reserve Board governors would stop talking. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, they talk way too much. All the time. And so many of them. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder, do they get paid for each speaking <laughs> engagement? Because why? I don't know. But yeah. I, I, I think it, it, a little mystique would go a long way. And the last press conference was very dif disappointing because the, the Fed uh, chair was asked, do you think monetary, uh, fiscal policy is, is, is too much? Should we, could, can you 
say something, and he refuses to even draw a correlation between the spending and um, Never thought you'd miss Alan Greenspan, right? I know. I miss his briefcase. (laughs) I miss his his, uh, testimony. Because he would freely comment on fiscal policy. And why yep. wouldn't you? I mean, it's right. such an important component. Right. Um, and Volcker did as yeah. well. You weren't born yet, so you wouldn't know Oh, that. that's so kind of you. <laughs> so kind of yeah, you. Yeah, so what we've been doing is, first of all, we moved our clients out of bonds in, in the summer of 2020 when the 10-year hit 50 basis point yield. And then we've been moving them back in recently and began adding risk back into our equity portfolios though it sounds counterintuitive, um, last fall. So that was technology and consumer discretionary. And, and those are names that we still like, but we've been trimming them because they've, they've appreciated so much. And we're looking for companies that, are, our investing theme is old economy companies that are embracing the digital revolution. Think McDonald's, Chipotle, okay. public storage, and then the, the suppliers of the digital solutions. So what are some of the names that, you know, again, we have a Fed that's kind of, at or close to peaking on rates, um, you know, so maybe some of that headwind for some of the tech and consumer names is, is kind of abating a little well, bit. Let's Would talk you- about public storage. Because yep. McDonald's and Chipotle, Paul and I are intimate yes. and familiar with. <laughs> uh, public storage, we don't know so well. What? Wh- why do you like them? What, what's that company about? So they're uh, engaging over 50% of their new clients uh, digitally. So they never meet with an individual. They ac- access their storage locker uh, digitally. And so it, they've really le- levered up on productivity at the company. Uh, and they've uh, they paid a special dividend last year of $13 a share, and they raised the dividend. So we just like it for a steady, stable earner in the portfolio to complement some of the riskier names that we have in there. And you have... Uh, you have... Um, Microsoft as well, or do you like Microsoft? Because um, lately, every company that has a difficult earnings report just has to mention AI to right. try and get it back <laughs> in. But but Microsoft's been at this game for longer than yeah. uh, you know TSMC. Well, we trimmed it. I mean, because we bought more last fall, and it was one of our largest holdings across all of our strategies. But it it came, it went well above our guidelines, so we've pulled back on weakness. We'd be adding to it. That's stock- but all those big giant uh, megatech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, um, Oracle, you held right. Mm-hmm. So are those yep. companies that you've taken profits? Um, we've only taken profits so far in uh, Salesforce and in Microsoft this round. Um, but historically, you know, we've been. T- at this for a long time. We were buyers of Apple in 2013. And so we've been a net seller of that stock for a long time. And we have, it's, it represents about 3% of our portfolio. The others are a much larger portion of it. But yeah, I think now's a really interesting time to look at Amazon. I thought Andy Jassy's shareholder letter was excellent. I think he's being Tim Cooked, um, <laughs> which was, you know, everyone doubted Tim Cook at mm-hmm. Apple. And that's when you got a once in a lifetime opportunity to yep. buy it at nine times earnings. You know, you mentioned one of your names buying on weakness uh, is a name that's been in the news a lot and that's Tesla yeah what I guess you had the stomach to to you know deal with Elon Musk what's your Tesla call here so I, I we're gonna be adding to it okay. I think you know the margin decline is meaningful but he still has margins at, at, yep. that are twice GM and and four, three or four times uh, Ford what what I think is important about uh, Elon Musk is that he seems to be always going where the puck is going, not where it's been. And so the the price kept cutting, and then today he announced price increases. That's going to drive people to the ecosystem. And I think, much like Apple, that's a really smart strategy. So he doesn't mind being underestimated, I think. I, I, I owned it once and sold it. Uh, because that was when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, smoking. Mm-hmm. Smoking you know. weed. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday was 420, so a lot yeah. of people were smoking, <laughs> smoking weed. But, yeah. Right. yeah, and uh, I sold it because, you know, he had his top management team turned over a number of times. Yeah. He had that SEC problem, and it went up four or five-fold from there. So when we got an opportunity in January to buy it back on a relative price-to-sales ratio, it's still attractive. We stepped in. and It's also interesting that he's doing... I mean, essentially, you see GM and Ford and all the other legacy automakers raising prices on their, you know, very expensive products, right. their high margin products, and then doing everything they can to cut prices on their lower end products. And that's certainly what Musk is doing as well. But since it's all electric, people don't differentiate right. as much, right? right? But he's raising prices on the $130,000 SUV while he's cutting prices on the $45,000, you know, um, uh, uh, sedan. So it, it just makes this that's a, a great lot of point, sense. Matt. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of the LVMH of uh, 
of the auto industry. And so. it gets that kind of valuation. Yeah. And, and then, I mean, it did, right? It was at 400. Now it's at 160. Yeah. So I guess this is the right time and to get in. we picked it off yeah. in, at like 104, but we didn't buy enough. That's, that's the perpetual <laughs> dissatisfaction of being a portfolio manager. <laughs> All right, Nancy, next time, any, anytime you're in New York, you need to stop by. Cause, but it, you're going to be in Tahoe and Scottsdale. I bet you're not in New York very often. I am. I'm here every month. Okay. Well, yeah. come back. Let us know when you're coming back. When we'll get you in here. We'll talk some more stocks, some more names. I want to talk to you about being a, uh, a senior woman in the financial services industry. I know you're the author of the book, The Woman's Guide to Successful Investing, and you're uh, working on a second edition. Now we want to get you in and talk to you a little bit about that because, as you know, uh, you are somewhat unique in the financial services industry. We appreciate that. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Deb Bacon. She covers uh, the retailers for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's based in London. So we're going to talk to her about Procter & Gamble because she covers Procter & Gamble. But then I'm moving on very quickly to luxury because Deb is my go-to voice, as she is for many institutional investors, on the luxury business. But, Deb, let's pay the bills here. Let's start with Procter & Gamble. The stock's up 3.8%. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's like the this stock never moves that much. Um, so they had some good numbers. Tell us what happened. Right. I think, uh, you know, I, I looked at these numbers and um, the market was already expecting decent sales growth. So there was a little beat um, on sales. But the big thing here is the amount of gross margin that they're accumulating. And when we think that we're going to see costs start to fall away and also Forex headwinds start to transition over the coming quarters, that bodes really well for the level of productivity that's there. Their volumes are down 3%, but that's kind of in line with the market. So they're holding market share by value and volume. They're investing heavily in, in marketing spend, and it really bodes well for where their position going into next fiscal year. What, what, what are the Forex, Forex headwind transitions you're expecting? What are we looking for? So the company expects 5% by year end for fiscal 2023. Um, and this quarter, we're already starting to see that come off. So it was one half weighted. This is their fiscal Q3. Far, so pardon me, far, 5% what? of five percent of what? Sorry, so, so on 5% of sales. So at the top line for fiscal 2023, you're going to see all in net sales, not 1%, because there's going to be about a 5% Forex headwind fiscal 2023. But as, the, as we've seen um, through the coming quarters, we see 4% Forex headwind in the last Q3, and that should go down some more in Q4. So bit by bit into next year, we'll see that headwind turn into tailwind. And at the same time, we've seen peak, of course, we'll start to see some of those coming off, and that just really puts them in good position for next year. All right, Deb, Matt Miller's more of a, you know, Procter & Gamble guy. I'm more of a luxury goods guy. So talk to us about what's going on in the luxury good business. I know you follow all of those names. I want to get it from the angle of China reopening because, you know, one of, everything I know about the luxury good business, I learned by reading your research. But China's reopening, that's got to be a really big tailwind. When will some of the luxury good companies start to see that? I mean, in terms of share price, we're seeing that already, right? Some of the big, so it was announced 8th of January. Um, that, that China would do a big reopening, a very big surprise. And already we start to see share price momentum on the back of that. So we've seen the likes of Hermes or Brunello Cuscinelli up over 30% year to date. And these companies already swung quite well through second half of 2022. Um, and then for the sector overall, it's becoming an outperformer. And what we saw was January was still very difficult because people were uh, hesitant to get back into the marketplace, product not in the right place. By February, these companies are saying that we're seeing traveling, we're seeing spending in stores, a return into the market, but still a drag for China overall in Asia through the Q1. Into Q2, though, we would expect if there are no big adversaries that we see double-digit growth starting to pick up through Q2 year on year and through the rest of 2023. Talk to us about just the the, the supply chain for some of these re luxury retailers. I mean, where do they source their product? Has it been a problem? Is it getting better? So on the on the supply chain side. 
Right. So if we think about the heritage companies like Hermes, like LVMH, um, the Italian um, traditional luxury makers, everything's produced locally. So as in, so I, I need to rephrase that. Everything is produced out of Europe. So France, Italy and others. So their supply chain is particularly robust. Um, and in fact, they're having to probably raise 45% capacity per year just to manage that double-digit growth because they they have had such an explosion that some of these companies have doubled their sales versus 2018. So they're fully uh, compensated 2019, 2020 and through the lockdown. And they're out at the other end and they're bigger and stronger than ever. So they're having to, to build production and build supply chain around that. The big move also has been that pre-COVID, we saw only around 45% of sales online. And now that's very much more than doubled and in the teens for many makers. And they're working with big, um, you know, some of the best in class in terms of, of um, partners out there like Farfetch, Alibaba, um, luxury portals to really do things also online. Right. So they're, they're marketing to more clients, baskets of bigger size, and also they're getting the younger generation on board more quickly. So, Deb, I look at, you know, the shares of Hermes, um, or Hermes up 38% this year, 52-week high, yeah. uh, up 60% on a trailing 12-month basis. Have I missed that luxury trade? <laughs> You're going to be buying it for 48 times next year's PE, but the, I've had so much interest in this stock over the week because the idea here is that you know there are only 300 stores worldwide the company will um has opened two new production sites for leather goods this year um they have another production site coming on board every year to 2027 um and so that's how they're fulfilling their growth they have waiting lists longer than some of the watch companies um, and yet they're also using their one single individual brand to transition into very sizable and weighty um, sectors. They're doing very well in ready-to-wear, of course, but right. into other, into jewelry, into homeware. Homeware is absolutely... All right. so there's plenty of stuff, plenty, plenty of stuff for me to, 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 to spend on. Deb Bacon, she's a senior analyst covering luxury goods uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, out of London. She's talking about the Procter & Gamble numbers, very strong. Talking about luxury, which remains very strong. These stocks have been on an absolute tear, in part due to a China reopening. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. John Tucker, thank you so much. We appreciate that. You know, I kind of forgot about this deal, um, but it's a big one. Kroger, Albertsons, the supermarket chain's $25 billion merger. Uh, it is winding its way through the regulatory process. We're going to get an update on that. And in order to do that, we have our expert in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. That's Jennifer Lee. She's a senior litigation analyst. She covers antitrust uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. Absolutely indispensable when you get these big M&A trades that you know are just going to be looked at by the various regulatory authorities. It's good to get an expert opinion on that. So, Jen, just give us the latest here. Again, it's a big deal. Supermarket business, $25 billion. Where are we in the review process? Is this deal going to get done? Right, sure. Well, you know, they've been in the investigation phase. So the FTC started their in-depth investigation early December. And it usually takes the companies four to five, maybe even six months to finish that up. And the news is quiet during that time. And I think that's why this has been sort of fallen off the radar. But I'm thinking it's probably about time soon for the companies to finish that up. And that's when things sort of get into earnest in terms of talking about whether there's a remedy that might be sufficient for the Federal Trade Commission to agree to clear the deal. What does the Federal Trade Commission want? Well, they're going to want divestitures of stores. And I think what this is going to come down to um, is how many stores will have to be sold and who the buyer will be and whether or not that buyer is adequate. And I believe these companies face a really skeptical Federal Trade Commission on both of those. I, and I have a funny feeling they're probably not going to be able to come to terms on this. And if they can't, it means they're going to get a lawsuit to block the deal. I mean, well, 
where is Kroger? I mean, Albert's is, is a West Coast chain, right? Kroger's in Columbus. Yeah, Kroger's in Columbus in the South. I mean, they're not around here, so I don't even think about them. But it seems like it's an easy fix. Paul, you if you, you want just, the best of everything, including the price, Columbus you should go Kroger-ing. Go kroger Okay, <laughs> yeah. very good. I would think you just have a big map. Mm-hmm. And where they overlap, you say you got to sell one of them. End of story. What's the big deal? Right. And that's the way it's always gone. Okay. You know? And so he, here's sort of the fundamental problem that the Federal Trade Commission is facing and thinking about today. That is the way these deals have always gone. You have a map. You look at local regions, one mile to 10 miles. If they overlap and it's concentrated, you divest, you're good to go. Yep. But what that has resulted in in many different industries, according to this Federal Trade Commission, is too much consolidation and overly concentrated industries. So they don't like like that approach very much anymore. They, they've taken it in agriculture, right. you know, they've taken it in, in many different industries that are local in nature. So in this one, I think they're going to go beyond that. They're not just going to look at these local overlaps. I think they'll also define fairly narrow markets, which then increases concentration in those local regions. But they may also look in, in regionally or nationally to see the impact of this combination on suppliers. They might go the other direction, mm, Okay. right? Uh, so a but package good store. If I'm in an industry that has Walmart, I'm like, I got no problem. I mean, you, you, you're jumping on me because I'm hooking up with another regional <laughs> supermarket chain when I compete against Walmart. Right. And, you know, part of the argument is that these companies need to combine to better compete with yeah. the Walmarts and the Costcos of, of the course. world. But, you know, what happens when they say, well, we need the scale. We need to combine because we need the scale to better compete against Walmart and Costco. Oh, but we think we can divest a handful of stores and they can succeed on their own without that scale. You know, it, it's, it's difficult mm. to make that argument. And that's really what they're going to do here. You know, they're talking about 300 stores or so. While in their divestiture agreement, Kroger has agreed to go all the way up to 650 before it has the right to walk away from the deal. So I think the FTC is going to be looking for that 650 number or more. How long is this going to take? I mean, um, they've just, they're likely done responding to the FTC's mm-hmm. inquiries now, right? And then you say you expect maybe a lawsuit at the end of the year, next year. When is it going to? No, I think it'll happen before then. So as of April 5th, they had not yet finished these, what they call second requests. That's the investigation. They may be done now. Now, technically, as soon as they finish, the FTC only has 30 days, but it's pretty commonplace to enter into a timing agreement with the agency that gives it at least another 60, sometimes 90 more days beyond that. So let's say they do that, they could get, and they get the lawsuit, that would be around August timeframe. Um, these kinds of lawsuits are for preliminary injunctions, so they move quickly. The average timing, based on my calculations, is about five months from the filing of the complaint to a decision. So theoretically, there could be a decision by the end of this year or even early in 1Q. All right. This is what I always do when I'm talking M&A. I go, M-A, go. I click on the deal, <laughs> and I click on the advisors. So the seller here has Credit Suisse and Goldman Sachs as their financial advisors. They have seven legal advisors. And I'm not talking Mickey Mouse firms here. I'm talking Cravath. I'm talking White and Case, Wachtell, Lipton. Uh-huh. I mean, the lawyers are getting paid here big time. Um, it's just crazy how that plays out. But I guess the question is, is this just a function, this tough view of this deal? Is it a function of the Democratic administration that if this were a Republican administration, the FTC might be more inclined to let this deal go through? You know, possibly. I I think there was sort of a a change that began in antitrust actually during the Trump administration. It's not just this this administration. This one is certainly aggressive and activist. But there has been this movement generally and somewhat bipartisan to strengthen up our M&A, the the way we view M&A and the way we scrutinize these deals. To strengthen antitrust. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, and we also have this example, you know, from in 2014, Safeway and Albertsons merged, and it was a big failure. They cleared it. They divested stores. The company that bought the divested stores went bankrupt before a year. And then Albertsons bought back a bunch of those stores. I mean, that is a colossal but failure. But was it a failure in terms of, because I think this administration right now has to think not only about antitrust, but also about inflation. Right. So the question is, with scale, are you able to keep prices down or... With scale, are you able to push higher prices onto consumers? Good point. Right? That's that's the crux of the argument that Biden has to worry about right now. It's not Biden, obviously, right. but... His yeah. regulators. But yeah. I, And that's exactly the issue. I mean, the companies say with scale, 
this will trickle down to better prices for consumers. That's what the companies say, right? The companies will defend it in that way. To the regulators and to the customers, but to the shareholders, they're like, hey, if we can get this scale, we're going to push through price increases on these customers. Exactly. And once upon a time, an argument about efficiencies was really helpful in the antitrust context because the thought was, if a company can gain efficiencies, that'll pass down to consumers too in better prices. But over time, the regulators said, no, this isn't really happening. It's just better margins for the companies. It's really not trickling down to the consumers. We're not going to give as much credence to these efficiencies claims or these claims that this scale will allow us to to provide better prices. All right. So we got this big supermarket deal out there. What else are you looking at? What else is, you know, in in the lens of kind of this, you know, M&A litigation antitrust issues? Well, I'm just waiting because I expect the Department of Justice is likely to sue to try to block the Adobe Figma transaction, which has been floating out there. Really? That's that's another yeah. big one, right? Yeah, okay. that's another big one. And I think $20 billion, I believe. And I suspect that's going to happen. And I think that could happen at any time. Now, you know, the Department of Justice has already sued to try to block JetBlue and Spirit. So I'm watching that. That's going to go into trial and we'll see what happens there. Uh, I think they have a pretty good argument, to be honest, in that case. I, I, I suspect the DOJ can be successful. Really? Yes, because I think well, this Je- is... it's JetBlue and Spirit. I mean, Spirit. Who cares about Spirit, really? Do we? Well, the people who like an ultra-low-cost carrier option very uh, okay. much care about Spirit, and they're going right. to lose that option if JetBlue takes over all of those routes. And I think that's the crux of the matter. I will tell you, having lived in Europe for a long time... It's uh, it was so awesome to be able to fly anywhere on the continent for like 50 bucks at any time that I've lived there that I lived there over the last like seven years. Right. Then I come back here and (laughs) I want to fly to Austin and it's like I got to fly economy. You know? Oh my gosh. Oh no. That's just terrible. But 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 flying economy on United to Austin still costs like. Uh, 10 times more right. than flying business on Ryanair to right. Valencia, you know? So, <laughs> I, 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 and it's six foot consumer, four, economy's not good for you. No. It's, it's just painful for my knees, you know? Yeah. Especially at my age. So, that, that I guess they don't factor that into the spirit uh, jet blue thing. Want to so. hear something funny about Paul? Sure. Until very recently, he thought the picture of the guy on Alaska Airlines' tail was Jerry Garcia. <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> I you really to, thought that. I did. Well, and I had a pilot. Jerry pregnant. Garcia may have been an, an Eskimo. <laughs> I don't even know if you're Can we to say Eskimo? Eskimo? I think Eskimo, Eskimo might be canceled. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know, but yeah. next time you're at an airport and you see Alaska Airlines, tell me what you think. It's not so far off. I'm just well, I'm going to have to take a look. <laughs> all right, Jen Reed, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, senior litigation analyst. She covers all the antitrust stuff for all the big M&A out there. Uh, nobody else on the street has that kind of research. We do at Bloomberg Intelligence and she works closely with the industry and stock analysts so that we get the best analysis out there to our clients. Uh, Jen Reed, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
over the last several years, there's been a big push or, or move towards kind of reshoring a lot of uh, operations and businesses on U.S. soil, you know, by American, that kind of thing. It's kind of gained momentum and certainly exacerbated by the, the pandemic. But there are those that say, hey, let's not go so fast here. Maybe this global supply chain thing uh, is still a thing. Dave Stalin joins us. Are those people from Taiwan? I don't know. We'll find out. They, Dave Stalin. chill out a little bit. <laughs> exactly. He's the CEO of the Telecommunications Industry Association. Uh, he's also a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and a former infantry officer uh, with the U.S. Marine Corps. So we thank him for his service. Dave, thanks so much for, for joining us here. Again, you think about over the last three, four years, pandemic, been a lot of talk about onshoring. And, I, and it kind of goes, it, it's taken another level maybe with some of the technology, maybe a Cold War brewing between the U.S. and China on things on the telecommunications and technology space. What's your view of how things have kind of evolved? Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. I, I think through the pandemic, we've recognized how important connectivity is. Uh, we It's almost like the air we breathe, uh, but we don't want it to be polluted air, right? So it's important that we're buying products and building networks from trusted suppliers. But, I mean, we are buying a lot of products and building networks with uh, products out of China, certainly out of Taiwan, but also out of China. Um, should we be concerned about that? Yeah, I definitely think there's a, a legitimate concern. And the administration has uh, significant concerns about the concentration of ICT or technology manufacturing in China. But what's not clear is should government review uh, outbound investment uh, in a way that that really forces companies to determine uh, at a high level with heavy government review where they buy their products from. Uh, we're strong supporters of building product in America, uh, and we are definitely, as an ICT industry, trending in that direction uh, more and more so. Uh, but it's probably hard to get everything built in America at a reasonable price. Well, so, and what about a free market? You know, what about um, businesses being able to do whatever they want with their dollars? How much should the government be involved in this? Yeah, so I'll go back to the point that everything is connected these days from an uh, IoT device in your home to a critical network to a broadband network. Uh, and we have to be careful with that uh, level of connectivity to ensure we're buying products and services from, from trusted partners. Uh, and I think that's one of the roots of the issue. The other, of course, is uh, the overall uh, competitiveness around the globe. So uh, we first need to make sure that we're buying trusted products. And, and TIA, as you mentioned, is an industry association that's been around for 80 years. We've obviously seen a ton of change. Uh, and we create standards for the industry. And we advocate with the government for the industry. Well, large companies, small companies, uh, and we're, we're very focused on ensuring that the networks that are getting built are going to become more and more trusted over time. But you have to verify trust. You can't just assume it. And that's where the standards side of TIA comes into play as we've developed the first uh, cyber and supply chain security standard that's measurable for the industry. So kind of going down that route, Dave, I mean, the companies that you or many of the companies that you represent, have been have done and continue to do business in China. They just have to. Uh, that, uh, that's just yes. kind of where the supply chain takes you. Um, can't disengage from China. So, what are some of the companies that you represent? What are they? Have, how have they changed their behaviors or their business models over the last several years? Sure, it's it's a couple aspects. One is uh, definitely companies are moving manufacturing out of China to other places in the world. Some cases, the U.S but to other places in the world. Uh, there are many trusted U.S. Uh, trading partners out there, Mexico, India, and others, uh, that they're moving their manufacturing to. Um, number two, one of the big challenges we have is, on the ICT space, is anything that's electronics. We can make fiber cable here, and we do with companies such as Corning and Comscope. Uh, that's not a problem. We can make cell towers here. We can make all the attachments. Obviously, the uh, uh, the, the labor to build and to project manage uh, these networks can be done here. But moving chips over is a good first step, but it's not the only step. 
So the U.S. government has recently, about a year ago, introduced uh, as part of the IIJA, the uh, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, a really large $45 billion program to bring broadband to the unserved and un underserved around the country. One of the requirements is Buy America. So there are Buy America laws in place that say uh, when you use U.S. grant money, for example, the BEAD program, uh, the Broadband uh, Equity Access Deployment Program, part of IIJA, a lot of acronyms, uh, you must uh, follow the Buy America laws. Now, what we've asked for is a limited uh, and a, uh, a, a targeted waiver for certain parts of that. And in essence, anything that has a chip in it is not effectively made in the U.S. currently. So the labor is no problem, the fiber cables no problem, the towers no problem, but anything that has a chip, in other words, electronics, anything with intelligence that has a chip in it, uh, is currently, for the most part, not made in the U.S. Yeah. Therefore, we need that uh, waiver for this bead program. By the way, as Paul was saying, you have a, a tremendous resume um, and obviously have served uh, this country in the U.S. military in, in, in many different ways after uh, the Naval Academy, uh, U.S. Army Ranger School, a distinguished honor graduate there. We're in the first, second, third and fourth Marine divisions. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is uh, this question is pertaining to the telecommunications industry association at all but do you worry that even some of our military equipment has chips out of china absolutely and and the u.s uh, military the dod is very concerned about that as well and they're putting tighter and tighter restrictions we all know that uh the biden administration also just set aside something like 65 billion dollars to bring chip manufacturing back to the u.s this standard that I alluded to, what we call uh, SCS 9001, is the only measurable and certifiable cyber and supply chain security standard out there. We look at the processes that somebody uses when they're developing a product to ensure that it's trusted, the software and the hardware. You have to go back to the root uh, to ensure that you're developing a product that is secure. So it, it, you have to have third-party verification that the software and hardware, there's so much open source software being used these days, you have to verify that those things are secure. You know, that's why I'm in this job. Um, many of my peers are, uh, are you know, sailing on a boat or uh, <laughs> digging in their garden in the backyard uh, and long retired. But I am really passionate about this industry and passionate about the security of our country. We appreciate it, Dave, and appreciate all your service uh, in support of this country. Dave Stalin, CEO of the T Telecommunications Industry Association, uh, looking at the kind of the global technology trade, the global telecommunications trade. A lot of work to be done there to ensure uh, these systems out there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Formula One, this is a big business globally. It's starting to get bigger here in the U.S., I think, and um, I, I know a little bit about this because the Liberty Media folks own it, and uh, they have big, big plans for growing Formula One. And we got a big, big race coming to Miami, the Formula One Miami Grand Prix coming. That's a big news for, I guess, any city that, that hosts it. But let's get the latest with Hannah Elliott. She's got a great story out on the Bloomberg. Hannah covers the auto industry uh, for us. Hannah, talk to us about Miami. It sounds like a fun event. It sounds like a must to event must must see event and be seen event tell us about miami must see, yeah totally must see and be seen is right. exactly right there's there's a reason they call it the magic city um that certainly applies to how miami does formula one it is a spectacle unlike any other um last year we saw that it f1 brought 350 million dollars into Miami um, with people, you know, spending money on hotels, decadent nights out, uh, drinking, partying, um, eating, culture, all of that. Plus, of course, race tickets. Um, and, and not a little that, bit of money, Hannah. I mean, I yeah, saw on your yeah. story, lots of money. I mean, some people are spending, uh, did you say there was like 30 or $50,000 bottle service? 
Yeah. So, um, you know, for instance, at the Club 11, which maybe you've heard of before, um, it's a big Miami club. We've had the CEO. (laughs) Tables start at $5,000 and they go up to $200,000. If you want a table with bottle service on the dance floor, that'll accommodate 100 people. Um, But yeah, I mean, of course, we've got... uh, You've heard of Carbone, of course, the Mm. great Italian restaurant chain. Carbone is doing a pop-up called Carbone Beach. They did it last year. They're going to do it again this year. Tickets cost $3,000. Tables start at $24,000. That's for a dinner or a meal. So this is is just for going going out, right? Now, I just came back from the MotoGP in Austin, which is motorcycles, of course, and it was far less crowded than um, Formula One was in Austin. But... What everybody wants at the race is access, right? You want to be in the paddock. You want to be able to walk up and down pit lane. You want to be able to peer into the garages. How much is that kind of access going to cost, if I can even get it, at F1 in Miami? So paddock club tickets right now are costing over $14,000. I, I have seen prices as low as 10000 but um, according to my last check, uh, I, w- I was emailing a couple people this week to confirm the final price. They're at $14,000 right now. That gets you, of course, access to these luxury suites with food and alcohol and will get you uh, pit access to in some cases. Then you have a lot of prices. By the, by the way, that was a tenth the price at the MotoGP. In, yeah. in Austin, they were 1400 You know, Austin is, I love Austin. Of course, Austin had the first Formula One race in a long time in the U.S. Uh, We love Austin. But Miami, you know, has quite a reputation for partying. And they really have to live up to it. (laughs) And the prices are reflecting that. (laughs) Hannah, talk to us about just Formula One in the U.S. I know, you know, the likes of, you know, Matt Miller all into it. Uh, I'm sure you are as well. Where where, where is it just in terms of popularity and and the growth of it? Yeah, how has it grown since the first race in Austin? So it's been really interesting. Um, You know, my Formula One has had some history in the U.S. starting in the late 1950s. There have been random races everywhere from Michigan to California to New York, but it's never really got a foothold. Um, Of course, the Austin race started about 12 years ago. That was really the first one. And since then, this is the second year for Miami. Also, this year, we've got a race in Las Vegas coming, which is going to be potentially even bigger (laughs) and more expensive than Miami. So we're getting a bit of a foothold. Um, A big part of that is the fact that Liberty Media is now the owner and really prioritizes television. Um, Of course, TV audiences are very important in America if you want a big fan base. Drive to Survive has been huge, right? Exactly. I was just going to say, you cannot underestimate the influence of Netflix's documentary series, Drive to Survive. Um, They've had, I think they're in their fifth season now. Um, And that is really humanized and drama, dramatized the drivers and the race. And actually, um, it's kind of been called the Kardashians on four wheels. (laughs) Which is kind of, it's really interesting and it really has broadened. So it's very fair to say that um, television, of course, television audiences are up every year by double digit percentages. We do have a lot of momentum and Miami's a big part of that. All right, listen, Hannah, while we have you here, I want to get your take on some of the other uh, issues in the car industry. Uh, more broadly we've been talking so much about tesla cutting prices six times in a row now for the cheaper models um last night we heard they're raising prices for the more expensive model x and model s what's your take on tesla right now they have they've seen incredible top line growth not as much as elon has projected but they have a lot of competition coming into the market Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think the biggest problem that Tesla has right now is the connection to its owner, Elon Musk. I live in L.A. I can't tell you how many people say I'm a little cringy when I drive my Tesla. I'm a little embarrassed about it because of some of the antics of the company owner. We can't uh, disassociate Elon from Tesla right now. And I do think that's hurting the brand perception. Secondly, to your point, there are so many worthy competitors now to Tesla. Tesla 100% beat everyone to the punch, but that was 10 years ago. And now we have amazing electric vehicles from Audi, BMW, Mercedes, Polestar, uh, you know, Volvo. The list goes on. Porsche. Um, Every every automaker now makes an EV. (laughs) Kia makes some kick 
Uh, can I say ass Completely. on Completely. I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> kick butt EVs. Hey, listen, one more. Uh, on um, Paul has like a 2006. 14. Four, 2014 BMW. It's a stick, cool. and he doesn't want to give it up, but he needs oh. to buy a new car. And he said he can't find anything with a stick out there. What would you recommend <laughs> to a sporty, successful, former Wall Street gentleman like Paul Sweeney? What should he get with a stick? What's out there? You can get a 911 with the stick. I mean, you can, <laughs> there you go. Let's just, let's just call it how it is. You can yes. still buy a 911 with a manual transmission, and you will love it. Yeah, that sounds good. I've been Why telling you for a while, dude. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Why put it off when eventually it's you're going to happen? It's only a matter of time. It's yeah. only a matter Come of time. On. You guys have got me read well. So, Hannah, what's the <laughs> next uh, thing on the – what's the next car you really want to test drive out there? Oh. I'll tell you what I'm going to drive in a week and a half, and I'm actually very excited about it. It's the Lamborghini Huracan Storato, which wow. is their off, quote unquote, off-road oh, yeah. Lamborghini. Cool. I'm going to go up to Joshua Tree. We're going to drive it in the desert. Damn. We're going to video it. Yeah. So now, I'm, that, I'm very but if they excited. say off-road, instead of it being like an inch off the ground, it's like three inches off the ground. Yeah, exactly. So you're this not you're for, you know, going down a dirt trail very yeah. slowly. I'm still not sure you want to take that on a Manhattan street with all the potholes. I know. This I know. is Hannah's we'll job, out. by the way. She's going to go to Joshua Tree, <laughs> probably with some rock yes. star in yep. a Lamborghini. They're going to do shrooms, camp out. It's going to yep. be awesome. And she gets paid I for mean, this. <laughs> I, I will report back. You're welcome to join. You know, let's make a party of it. <laughs> That is that is very cool, and a lot of these car makers are coming out with um, you know off-road versions. You mentioned the 911; yeah. they have their what's it called, the Dakar, and it's like 250 grand. Is it really yes. like an off-road worthy vehicle? I think so. I think so. Let's not forget Lamborghini really does have, or sorry, sorry, Porsche really does have a history of off-road racing, of rally racing. Of course, their Rothmans cars you know, decades ago were really uh, successful and popular. So yeah, I believe it. When Porsche says we've got an off-road, we've got a safari style 911, I believe that. You can even get that Rothman's uh, livery painted on your 911 Dakar. I think it's like a $23,000 option. The only thing about that is they changed the word to say rough roads instead of Rothman's, <laughs> even though the livery <laughs> looks the same, uh, which is... Yeah, are there, it's are a little any, weak. Are there That's any car makers, yeah. like luxury car makers, that just say, we're not going to go EV? Has anybody ever said that now? He, well, yeah. Ferrari has said that. Lamborghini said that. There have been a lot who say that. Okay. Um, who swear up and down, we will never go electric. I think at one time, Rolls-Royce said that. You know, they a lot say it. Um, a lot also said we'll never make an SUV. Mm. So whenever someone <laughs> says never, I do take it with a grain well, of salt. Yeah, we'll let you go. But the, the story I thought this week was hilarious or just really telling was Ford F-150. They're bringing their electric truck to Norway. Which I mean, is, which is okay. double funny if you remember those Will Ferrell commercials from the <laughs> yes, Super Bowl. Exactly. So I'm like, I don't know where you're going to wow. park that thing uh, in Europe. Yeah. yeah, Hannah Elliott, thanks so much for joining us. Really great stuff. We look forward to your reporting uh, from Joshua Tree in a few weeks. Hannah Elliott, she covers automotive stuff and she actually gets to ride and test drive all these cars and she's uh, got on the, on the highest of high high end yes vehicle well, out there expect nothing she writes else. for bloomberg pursuits check it out on the yeah. web you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 one of the things that Matt and I like to do on this show is try to bring some perspective to these markets, try to tap into some veterans who've been through a cycle or two, and our next guest certainly qualifies. Chris Aylman, he's the CIO of CalSTRS. What is CalSTRS? It is California State Teachers Retirement System. Is it big? Well, I think they got a portfolio valued at $306 billion as of February 28th, 2023. So the answer is yes. And of course, based in Sacramento, California. Chris, I mean, and it's also, I think it important yeah. to mention, it's important, right? This sure. is the retirement of teachers, the most underpaid people in our society, um, the most undervalued and uh, people like Chris help to make sure that they can yep. live well after they're done doing the service that they do for our for our society. Absolutely. It's a big responsibility. So Chris, given that kind of buildup, I mean, 2022, year to forget for most investors, a little bit better starting off this year. What do we, where do we go from here? 
Well, first off, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for that introduction. And I use that term, gentlemen, loosely. Yes. But is. Matt and Paul, it's been a long time. It is great to see you. I had to travel all the way to Berlin once just to see Matt on TV. <laughs> so, uh, hey, listen, guys, you know, surprisingly, my fiscal year is June 30. Uh, so it is a positive year. Uh, we're up single digits, uh, you know, high threes. Uh, that isn't a great year for us. We need to earn seven. But like you've been saying all day, everybody feels worried. Everybody is slightly negative, but the numbers aren't telling you that. The The stock market is up. Uh, look at uh, non-U.S. Uh, developed markets are up 13 uh, percent so far. They're up 9 percent just in 2023. So maybe, just maybe, they're <laughs> going to pull off a smooth landing. I, we just talked with Phil Orlando over at Federated Hermes. He expects S&P earnings to total like $190 <laughs> down from 219 last year. So there are some bears out there. What do you make of the sentiment in these markets, Chris? You know, Matt, I am looking out and I, I got to tell you, I'm worried. Uh, I had talked to a lot of global CIOs and we are all uh, on, feel like we're on thin ice. Liquidity is very tight. You don't go from zero to 500, well, in case of the Miami Grand Prix, you don't go from zero to 500 <laughs> basis points in nine months without seeing some pain, not just Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, but you know the next shoe to drop is obviously probably going to be in commercial real estate office debt. People are seeing some of that debt roll and uh, rates are higher and the buildings have to come down in value. We haven't seen any transactions. But yeah, that's, you know, just yep. the cap rates have changed. So it's a tough market. And people got to refinance. There's a Oof. wall of maturity coming due that we're all scared of. I find it fitting that the um, that the phrase, the next shoe to drop, comes from real estate. Yes. and I, you, It's you from New back. York tenements. Basically, <laughs> yes. back in the day, um, the walls and the, I guess, ceilings and floors yeah, were so right. thin <laughs> that you could hear someone taking off his shoes when he got into bed and you just waited after the first one for the next shoe to drop. <laughs> That's a good. You guys are amazing. Yeah. What history buffs. Stick <laughs> news, news you can use, Chris. Shoe drops. <laughs> so, so in terms of the Fed, how does Jerome, how did Jerome Powell and co deal with this? We, I guess I'll expect them to raise rates at least one more time. The debate is as to whether they cut rates when things start getting really painful. If we have big problems in commercial real estate for, for the uh, financial stability picture, if we have a jump in unemployment, if another one or two million people lose, uh, or if one or two million people lose their jobs and we get to like four and a half percent, which relatively is relatively low, but um, still that would, that would hurt for especially those losing their jobs. Does the Fed have the resolve um, to keep fighting inflation or will they um, you know, blink and cut rates early? Well, I can't read his mind. And, you know, you got to believe Jay Powell. He's, he's been consistent all the yep. way back since last, uh, well, last year, I was going to say last summer. He is willing to hurt the economy to reduce inflation. But so far, inflation has come down. Oil prices and commodity prices have softened. You guys were just talking about Dr. Copper about 30 minutes ago. And so I, I got to think that amazingly, uh, they are orchestrating, even though it's hard to believe, a soft landing. They are, though, going to raise rates, obviously, again, at least once more. And, and as your last guest said, we're all going to be looking for the P word, the pause word. Uh, and maybe they will. I don't think they're going to pivot this year. I think, think the market, the bond market's overly optimistic about that. Uh, but I, I am amazed at how uncomfortable investors feel. Yet the planes are full. People are shopping. They're going to the Grand Prix. They're buying bottle service. Hmm. Uh, it, it, this economy is strong, not just here, but Matt, explain to me Europe. That is amazing to me. It is actually. I, I mean, you know, Paul, for for months, Paul and I were terrified for yep. Europeans on their behalf. We thought, <laughs> oh my goodness, what are they looking forward to? It's going to be an awful winter, and it turned out, I, you know, the weather is what uh, blessed them, I guess, um, and, and they seem to have avoided a recession. Also, you got the Chinese reopening, which was a surprise. With with th those things happening, I kind of expected a lift to commodities prices, right? Yep. And we still see oil now at $77 a barrel, even after the surprise cut. 
Why don't we see, uh, you know, iron ore was tanking this morning when I came in. Why don't we see a lift to these commodity prices? Why isn't the global economy expected to grow with all of, uh, with all of these blessings uh, from, a, from beyond? You know, I'll tell you guys a secret. That's why I listen to your show every day when I drive there in. There you go. <laughs> uh, you know, in California, you know, we're the graveyard shift of the financial markets. So we're coming in when the market's already open. But I listen to you guys because I'm baffled by this. Uh, you're right. I have been in, Paul mentioned, I've been in this business a heck of a long time. And uh, this market is really a conundrum uh, because so many people feel like there's some kind of a pothole not an 08, but a, but a pothole coming, a recession. It's the most anticipated recession in history. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but therefore it may not happen. We may just muddle our way back out of this. Uh, I find that hard to believe. I've been nervous. We have been defensive all year and that's hurt us. Not tremendously, but you know, every time there's a rally, we sell into it. And I see that in a lot of investors. The one thing I'm very concerned about is illiquidity uh, amongst uh, major institutional investors, endowments. Uh, certainly, in the, there's no liquidation in, in private equity or in real estate. And those are two huge illiquid asset classes. We all count on some activity in cash flow, and nobody's seeing anything. So yep. if you're a mature plan like we are, where people have negative cash flows, you know your cash is dear in this market, and you're holding on to it. All right, Chris, really appreciate getting a couple of minutes of your time. As always, next time you're in New York, please let us know. We'll get you in the studio here, have a proper discussion. Get you in the studio. We'll take you out to lunch, man. Exactly right. Yeah, this is the big town. Extended we can, we can cocktail hour, sure, bottle we can do service. That. Absolutely. Chris Ailman, he's the CIO of Calsters. They manage uh, the money for the California State Teachers Retirement System. Uh, been a longtime investor, really sage. We love getting his thoughts. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.